0: We're going to be in Acts chapter 15 this morning, we're going to go backwards a little bit. The title of this morning's message is Grace Plus Nothing, Grace Plus Nothing, Acts chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open those up. And let's go ahead and stand. We're going to read the first 11 verses. We're pretty much going to cover the entire chapter today, but we're going to read the first 11 verses to kind of just prime us so we kind of know what's in this chapter, and then we'll get into our study. Verse 15, or sorry, chapter 15, verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem and to the apostles and elders about this question. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all their brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter, and when they had been Uh, In much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And so God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And make no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come before you and we thank you for your grace. Just as Johnny was praying about the moisture, we're so thankful for it. We're thankful for those, Lord God, that have braved the elements, the roads, the the blizzard outside to come and gather with us together this morning. Lord, we're thankful for those who are able to flex today as sicknesses hit us once again, whether it be up in the projection booth, whether it be um, up here on the stage as well, Lord, we just ask your blessing upon your people for a quick healing. May your hand be extended to them. And Lord, may your hand be extended to us this morning as well. As we are looking at this passage, we pray, Lord, for your anointing and your blessing. Father, we know that there hasn't been time or to, to prepare, but Lord, we, we know that you um, are able to transcend time. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would speak to our hearts and encourage us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> is that kind of humming, buzzing? You guys hear that too, or is that just in my head? You guys can hear that a little bit too? Okay. Because I am like really plugged up, so please forgive me. Um, I want to start with a little bit of a a story to kind of prime and prep our hearts. Um, The story is told on a snowy January day. This is a snowy December day. In the early 1900s, a crowded passenger train steamed its way from Chicago to St. Louis And at one of the many stops along the way, one of the travelers observed a young mother who boarded the train with her two small children. Please, sir, she said, I need to get off at the city of Beaumont, he heard her say to the conductor. The passenger, taking note of the overworked conductor, approached the young woman and said, the conductor is busy, and no doubt he'll forget that you want to get off at Beaumont, but I've been on this train a hundred times, and I'll make sure that you get off at the right place. Several hours later, as the train decelerated, the man made his way to the young woman and said, this is the spot. Here is where you want to get off. And thanking him, she gathered her children and went out into the blizzard. Half an hour passed before the conductor called out, where is the woman who wants to get off at Beaumont? It's coming up in five minutes. Horrified at what he had heard, the man said, what do you mean? Beaumont was the last stop we made. No, sir, replied the conductor. The last stop we made was to pick up water at a tank in the middle of nowhere. And both men instantly realized that the woman and her children had been sent off the train to their deaths. Not many of you become teachers, writes James, because if you seek to give instruction and direction, there is an inherent possibility that you may lead someone astray. And that's exactly what is happening here in Acts chapter 15. Those who desire to be teachers in the radically missionary church there in Antioch came from Jerusalem to give teaching to the new Gentile converts. But as we see, their teaching led to a blizzard of confusion and a storm of controversy. Again, look at, let's look at verse 1. And it says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught their brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through these regions, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy joy to all the brethren. And when they come to Jerusalem... They were received by the church and the apostles and the elders and reported to them all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. One of the hardest things for these poor minds of ours to comprehend and grasp is the freeness of God's salvation. In other words, it is so difficult for us to abide in the actuality of grace. To remain in, to dwell in, to make our habitation in, to rest, to settle into the truth and into the reality of grace. To realize that the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is justified by faith justified on the grounds of and the finished work of the person of Jesus Christ at Calvary, plus nothing else. This is the greatest reality of all. His finished work is more than sufficient. And absolutely nothing else is to be added to the proprietary work of our Lord Jesus Christ as the ground of our salvation. Amen? This is the gospel, as preached in the beginning and as preached by God's faithful servants down through the centuries. But always there has been found those who, because of their legalistic bent, thought it too good to be true that men could be saved by grace alone. And they attempted to add something to the gospel. One comes along and says, yes, you are saved by faith, but you must be baptized to get to heaven another says grace saves us yes but it is mediated through the sacraments and you must partake of the lord's supper and in order to enter into divine life others say yes we're saved by grace but god saves men through the church and you must join this church if you were to be saved at last but the question is what does the bible say what does god's word teach it teaches that we are saved by grace, grace alone. Nothing else needs to be added to it. It is more than sufficient to save, to redeem, to cleanse, to purify. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. The undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor of an altogether righteous and sovereign God, done without expectation of return. The absolute free expression of a loving of the loving kindness of God to men finding its only motive in the bounty and the benevolence of the giver in the beginning as the apostles labored among the gentiles they were preaching salvation by grace plus nothing and this mes- this message troubled certain men which came down from Judea to Antioch to teach and instruct these new gentile christians to them grace was just too easy it wasn't sufficient enough and so they said in verse one unless you are circumcised according to the custom of moses you cannot be saved it was an attempt to add something to the finished work of the lord jesus christ and it caused quite a stink so much so, verse two, it says that Paul and Barnabas were then determined, and some of the others were determined and appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders to talk about, to ask, what are they to do with these new believers? And they would go to the city where the first church had been established, and they would find out if the gospel that they were preaching was in accordance with the gospel that was being preached there in Jerusalem. Verse 3 tells us this, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And what was the outcome? It brought great joy to all the brethren who heard it. Verse 4, Then they came to Jerusalem. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. Notice that they didn't launch immediately into a discussion of the subject of law and grace. The church had a welcome meeting of sorts for Paul and his companions as they took the opportunity to give what we would call today a missionary update. And they declared all that God had done with them and through them. And I, for one, would have loved to have been there just recently, we just got back from Jerusalem, from Israel, and we were able to walk in all these different places. We talked about some of the miracles. We talked about the sermons that Jesus gave. We talked about the, we were up in, in uh, Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, many different places. And so often we thought, man, what we would have given to be able to be there at that time and to hear what was said. And this is also one of those moments. I would have loved to have been there at this time, when Paul and Barnabas and his companions were there giving their, vit- their veteran missionary accounts of all that God had done in and through them and all the different places that they had gone to recount all the countless miracles of grace that were wrought among the Gentiles. One might suppose that even after listening to these accounts, that the the question would have already been answered whether or not anything should be added to grace or not. But seated there were certain brethren, verse 5 we read, who before their conversion had been Pharisees and had brought their Phariseeism into the church. And notice, I do call them brethren. They are brothers. These men were believers, They trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And listen, they were honest men. They were honest men. It's hard for us to realize when religious conflicts come up within the church, within believers, that men and women may see something altogether contrary to what we believe. And yet, if we're honest before God, we need to recognize that he or she is honest too and seeking to stand for what he or she believes to be the truth. So these men, they weren't evil men. They weren't in there trying to cause division or to stir up strife. They genuinely had come to know Christ as their Savior, and their faith had cost them dearly. Remember, these men did not have the New Testament as we have today. They were brought up in the Old Testament. They were a product of their upbringing. Lloyd Ogilvie put it this way, Think of the stability of the Pharisees' training in Hebraism, his immersion in the Mosaic law and tradition, his pride in being part of the chosen people of God. Live in his shoes as we relive the steps of the rigorous education and joyous participation in Israel's customs. Feel the loving arms of parents and family as he circumcised on the eighth day. Catch the awe and wonder he felt sitting at the feet of the elder Pharisees, studying the Scriptures. Identify the pride he felt when he became a son of the law at his bar mitzvah. Become one with him as he grew to full manhood and earned the revered status of a Pharisee and consider how he must have burst with satisfaction as he put on the dignified robes of a leader of Israel. Into the Pharisees' neat and well-ordered life came the collision of Christ's claims. And with that, an agonizing civil war began within. Of course, they gained so much by knowing Christ. But parents other relatives and friends would consider them dead they lost everything because of their association with jesus and so with this understanding of their upbringing it's natural to think that it would be difficult at best to make a clean break from their past as pharisees though christians they could not bring themselves to give away centuries of distinctives that had set their people apart from the rest of the world and don't miss this with good intentions they thrust those distinctives and traditions onto everyone else around them. After all, in the prophecies of the Old Testament, Israel was recognized as God's chosen people, separated from the rest of the nations. And there it was made clear that as others came to a knowledge of the true and living God, that they came to Israel and through circumcision were admitted into the congregation of the Lord. And as these legal-minded brethren read the Old Testament, they said, we can thank God for the conversion of the Gentiles. Yes, but they must come to God through Israel. They must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And so we read in verse 5, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So the state of the church was in a very precarious position at this moment. Those legal-minded Jewish Christians were not bad people at this point, but given time, their views tightly held would pull them so far away from the doctrine of grace that they would become apostate. Something needed to be done. And that the root of the controversy was their heritage, their upbringing. This is what they knew. And the truth of the matter is, we are all influenced by our upbringing. We are all influenced by our heritage. If we've grown up in the church, we're we're influenced by our church heritage. Each of us has experienced some doctrinal, some practical distortion because of past experience, or environment this last week we talked about the holy spirit in our home groups and numerous people in our home groups shared how they were brought up thinking this way about the holy spirit or this way about the holy spirit but what does the bible say i was taught this by our church this is what we practiced in our church but what does the bible say about these things And as we walk through that, at the end of our time together, they're like, man, thank you for taking the time to walk through this. It's really helpful. It clears up a lot of confusion and a lot of shame and doubt that I had because of what I had been taught and told and instructed growing up. The challenge for all of us is to identify those points of error and misemphasis before we drift too far away from the doctrines. Of grace and truth found in Scripture. We need to be careful that we do not project ourselves onto others and thus burden them with stipulations and requirements that would cut them off from the grace that God wants them to enjoy. So, after a good bit of strong fellowship we read about here in the Scriptures, it was decided that the apostles and elders should come together to Jerusalem and consider this matter before a drift was created that would soon be too great to bridge. Notice verse 6. Excuse me. (coughs) Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to the men and brethren, You know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth, The Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And so God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do we test God? By putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the, manner, uh, in the same manner as they. And so it seemed eminently fitting that Peter should be the chief spokesman on this occasion. He was recognized as the one whom the Lord Jesus Christ had given the very special commission to feed my lambs and to feed my sheep. He was the one chosen by God to go down to the house of Cornelius, the Gentile, and preach the gospel to him and his household. And so after the brethren had gathered together to consider this matter and talked back and forth and had a great deal of discussion for some time, Peter would then stand up and he said in verse 7, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. And by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And then he related what had occurred when he went to the house of Cornelius. He preached the gospel he did not add works he did not say anything about clean or unclean foods or jewish practices or jewish traditions such as circumcision but he told them about the lord jesus christ who lived and died and rose again and he preached this gospel verse 8 god who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the holy spirit just as he did to us what does that mean listen when the holy spirit came at pentecost upon the great multitude of converted jews there in acts chapter 2 he came in power and there were outward signs of his presence and so when these gentiles heard the word and they believed immediately the same blessed holy spirit fell on them and baptized them into the body of christ and gave them the same outward signs he had given the israelites in jerusalem thus demonstrating with certainty that God accepted the Gentiles on the basis of pure grace, not on the basis of anything that they had done or where they came from or what their past heritage or pedigree was. Grace that is altogether apart and separate from the works of the law. Jew or Gentile, there was no difference in the eyes of God. Oh, how we need to stress this no-difference doctrine today. Paul, in his epistle to the Romans, says there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't make any difference what religious standing you have. No difference as to what part of the world that you are born in, whether among Christians or among heathen, Jew or Gentile. There is no difference, for all have sinned. The word sin literally means to miss the mark. And all men have missed the mark. Not one man has ever lived in this world without failure or sin. Except, of course, for Jesus. Another scripture in Romans chapter 10, verse 12 says, There is no difference for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. There is no difference. All are sinners. No difference. The same Savior is for everyone. And through putting our trust in him, all men may be justified. And so Peter says in verse 9, that God made no distinction. There is no difference between us and them. Purifying their hearts by faith, just as he did with our hearts. That's what happens when people believe the gospel. It's not merely that they're justified before God. There is a new life. Their hearts are purified by faith. There is a complete Change a reversal of attitude when people are born again. One of the questions that we had this week in our home group was, uh, are you born again? If so, how do you know? And one of the answers was, well, you, you're different. You've been transformed. How you view the world, how you live your life, your attitude, your heart is changed. You're born again. This had taken place with these Gentiles who could doubt that God did the work. Yes, God saves men when they believe. He saves all sinners when they trust His Son, Jesus Christ, no matter what their state or condition, no matter what their background can be. God saves all to the uttermost. Amen? Amen. And He saves them by grace alone. It's not a matter of who they are or what they've done but who he is based upon what he has done. And so Peter says, Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter saying, We were in bondage all these years that we were in Judaism, and we had to be delivered from this and brought into the liberty of grace. And now, why bring the Gentiles under the same bondage of which we ourselves have been saved out of? And so in verse 11, he brings his speech to a climatic end, and he says this, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. That's a pretty amazing statement if you think about it. We should have expected Peter to say something like, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, they shall be saved in the same manner as we. But he turns the tables and says, we shall be saved just as they are. He switches it. Grace had done such a work in Peter's heart that he turned it around. Can you not see, Peter says, God is saving Gentiles by grace. And thank God He saves Jews by grace too. He delivers the heathen from corruption of idolatry. And He delivers the Jew from the bondage of legalism. All by grace. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me has nothing to do with culture or heritage, nothing to do with the church, nothing to do with what we can do or bring. It is grace, grace plus nothing, simply grace, grace alone. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ just as they will, Peter says. I love that. I absolutely love that statement through grace we are saved every person from the phd down to the least taught child from the crooked criminal to the most pious parishioner comes into god's family the same way solely by the undeserved kindness of a forgiving god and what we see is that paul and barnabas were preaching the same gospel that was being taught and preached in jerusalem for it was the true gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 12, however, these converted Pharisees didn't know what to say. And so we pick up in verse 12, and it says this, that the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders they had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And when this I'm sorry, and with this the words of the prophets agree just as it is written, after this I will return and will rebuild the temp- uh, the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, I will rebuild its ruins, and will take it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from whom the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that uh, we write to them to abstain from things polluted to idols, from sexual immorale, immorality, from things strangled and from blood, from Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And verse 22 Then it pleased the apostles and the elders and the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who is also called Barsabas, and Silas, C- uh, leading men among their brethren. And they wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to their brethren who are all, or so who are the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with these words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be uncir- you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seems good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives. For the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have therefore sent Jude, uh, Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things: that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from, strang- from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Verse thirty. So then when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. All the multitude fell silent, it says. They listened to what the Lord had done and was doing as Paul and Barnabas stood up to verify that Paul had just established by giving example after example of corrupt men changed by grace to godly men. And to add an exception, an exclamation point to it, the last man you might have expected to stand up and say anything was James in verse 13. And who is James? He's the brother of the Lord Jesus. He's called James the just because of his piety. He's said to be ascetic and scrupulous, a legalist of legalists before his conversion, which didn't take place until after the resurrection of Jesus. He was a leader of the Jewish party and the church. He was careful not to depart from the old ways until a fuller revelation had come. And so when James stands up, you can imagine the delight of all the Pharisees in the room. This man stands up like, oh, right, this is the guy that we want to address this issue a legalist of legalists, a Pharisee of Pharisees. This is the guy. It's over, guys. Here comes the message. And so when James stood up, they get all giddy and excited. They think that now their their viewpoint is going to be championed and the conflict and the debate is going to be over once and for all. And surely James the just would set Paul and Barnabas in their place. But to their surprise, James declares in verse 14 how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. James first showed how the conversion of the Gentiles was in accord with the Old Testament Scriptures. And then in verses 15 through 18, he describes how Israel, God's covenant people, had rejected their Messiah and how God was now taking out a people from the world, Jew and Gentile, to constitute the church of God. And this was all part of God's plan. That's exactly what Paul says at the end of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 16. The very end of it. It's a list of name after name after name. And then he gives this doxology at the very end of chapter 16 of the book of Romans. And what he's saying is this. He's saying this. This is part of God's plan. This is God's deal. He's trying to to let everyone know that Gentiles and Jews are all saved by grace all saved by the blood of the risen Christ and brought into one true and living community of believers called the church. And here, James is saying the exact same thing in Acts chapter 15. It was all part of God's plan. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Don't trouble these poor Gentiles who've turned to the Lord. This is a God thing. It is obviously a work of His divine grace. And by His grace, He has chosen us. And by His grace, He has chosen them. So far be it from us to subject them to anything more or to burden them with anything greater than what God has already done. In verse 22, it says that the decision pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church. And they sent a delegation back to Antioch with a letter. And notice the reaction, verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced because the letter contained two complementary principles for grace-filled living. Two complementary principles for grace-filled living. Number one, for those under grace we are not to make non-biblical requirements of others, okay? This means we are not to make areas of our lifestyle or our own personal convictions that are not spelled out in Scripture normative for others if we are to consider them good Christians. We are not to impose how people are to dress or to impose standards of living that we consider proper, We're not to impose our own personal tastes or musical preferences, including worship services, on others. We're not to project onto others what we believe constitutes what a good Christian man or woman is. If we thrust any of these things on others as prerequisites or necessities to a life of grace, then we are repeating the very same things that these guys in Scripture are trying to accomplish. And the sad truth of the matter is how easily we push our preferences on others and then we assume that they don't think or see or do things our way that they are not spiritual. Cover your head when you pray. Speak in tongues in this way. Worship on this specific day. Have communion every single service. King James only. How often we put people through the paces of our own spiritual heritage before we fully accept them as brothers or sisters in Christ. Winston Churchill tells a story of a British family that had a picnic by a lake and their five-year-old fell into the water. And none of the adults could swim. And so this five-year-old child is flailing in the water and some, some stranger comes running by and jumps in fully clothed to save this boy before he goes down a third time. And he brings this child up out of the water. He presents this child safe and sound to his mother. And his mother is holding this child and she's checking him out, making sure he's alive. She has just her hand on his chest, making sure he's breathing. She can feel his heartbeat. He's coughing. She's looking and making sure nothing's broken. And then she turns to this stranger and she says, where is his hat? <laughs> the point is, instead of rejoicing in her son's deliverance, and salvation the woman found something to be critical about and it's so easy for us to be like that woman isn't it especially as we relate to our brothers and sisters in christ and isn't it funny how often some uh, somehow others are never quite right when we look at them there's always something more that they need before they can measure up to our idea of what spirituality is and such an attitude is not only bad for us, it is deadly for the church. Secondly, because we're under grace, and this is probably the hardest thing for us to understand and to practice, to practice accurately. Because we're under grace, we gladly restrict our freedom for the sake of others. Paul states the same principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 19 through 21 where he teaches that we are to never let our liberty in Christ or our freedoms in Christ be used to cause another brother or sister to stumble. We are either a stepping stone for others to grow in their relationship with Christ or we're a stumbling stone. Remember all things are lawful, he says, but not all things are profitable. So two contemporary our, excuse me, com- complementary principles for grace-filled living. As those under grace, we are not to make non-biblical requirements of others, and as those under grace, we gladly restrict our freedoms for the sake of others. I'm going to have the worship team start making their, w- their way up. And I ask this last question. What does that mean for us today? What does that mean for us today? We've looked at this passage We've kind of seen the conflict. We've seen um, the, the, the godly wisdom that was given on how to resolve the issue. We've understood the background of those individuals who objected. And we can recognize that their hearts were right. Their hearts were good. They were good men. But they had a, a, a hole in their understanding of grace, if we can say it that way. There was a lacking in their understanding of grace. So, what are we to do with all of this? We are to preach grace alone. And we must tolerate nothing else but grace alone. You might say, well, gosh, Chris, grace is risky, isn't it? Grace is risky. And it can be abused. And it can be taken advantage of. But we must not reject it. It must never be rejected. God allows us, each and every one of us, to choose. He allows us to choose even wrongly. And His continued grace sustains and empowers us daily. You and I can sit here today and rejoice that the precious truth of the gospel has been preserved through the centuries. Grace through faith alone not of ourselves it is the gift of god and that believing in him you and i can be part of the great company of the redeemed that will someday be manifested as the glorified church of our lord listen grace preach grace tolerate nothing else for it is grace that brought us this far and it will be grace that will bring us safely home. Amen. Father, this morning we thank you for your, our time together in your presence, gathering together as sinners saved by grace. And Lord, we pray that as your Holy Spirit has hopefully worked upon our hearts this morning, that we would recognize that we Perhaps have not been fair to other brothers and sisters in Christ who maybe don't attend our church, attend other churches, that do things perhaps that we may not feel comfortable with, and we may think that, well, they're just not true Christians, because they do this or that, or they don't do this, and they don't do that. But Lord, we pray that you would guard our hearts against that false understanding. Because just as you saved us by grace, you have saved them by grace as well. And as you've saved them, you will continue to save us. And so, Lord, we pray, help us to be people that see as you see, that accept, that embrace our brothers and sisters in Christ who may have a little bit different belief or understanding or at least a practice than we have. Your Word says that we're saved by grace through faith. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. It is the grace of God. And so, Father, this morning we thank You. We praise You for Your grace. We pray, Lord God, if there's correction that needs to take place in our hearts, Lord, that you correct us. If we think that there's anything else that needs to be done beyond grace through faith, then, Lord, we pray you'd show us what that is. You'd show us and you'd correct us, Lord, and you'd bring us to the understanding that what Jesus did upon the cross is enough. And that what he did upon the cross made the ground level for all of us to stand. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.